A friendly reminder, we have a brilliant newsletter at 11FS called Fintech in 5. It's a snack-sized selection of the biggest stories of the week and is delivered straight to your inbox every Friday. Find out more and sign up at 11fs.com forward slash newsletter. That is 11fs.com forward slash newsletter. Hi everyone, I'm Sarah Kachansky and welcome to episode 76 of InsureTech Insider. We are still recording remotely. Um, we also still want your suggestions on people we should get on the show and we want to hear about as wide a range of people as possible. So do get in contact. Uh, you can do that by emailing podcast at 11fs.com um, and include your suggestions of who we should be speaking with. So today we're going to be talking about health insurance and specifically how the industry has been affected by COVID-19. As always, I'm not alone and today I'm joined by my co-host Nigel Walsh. How are you doing today, Nigel? I'm very well. I'm surprised the week seems to be flying by, but I'm very well, thank you. Brilliant. And joining us are three amazing guests. First up, we have Matilda Strom, Deputy CEO at Beamer. Welcome to the show, Matilda. How are you doing today? Thanks, Sarah. I'm uh, doing well, thanks. I'm thrilled to be here to talk to you guys about health insurance. So um, can you start off by telling us a little bit about Bima, please? Sure. So Bima sells insurance and digital health products in emerging markets. Uh, we're in nine countries in Africa and Asia. Uh, we've sold over 35 million policies since we started 10 years ago. And we sell to people who've typically never been insured before or have never utilized a, a telemedicine uh, product before. And we do this by using mobile technology to simplify the registration process and the claims process and uh, using a human touch. So actually using agents to help educate uh, customers about these products. Brilliant. Um, well, we're also joined today by Katie Crook-Davis, who's the Managing Director at Tabay. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for, for having me on. So can you tell us a little bit about Tabay, please, and, and what you do there? Sure, yeah. So uh, Tabay is a life and health insurance consultancy. So we work with insurers and distributors across uh, proposition development, pricing, uh, marketing and communications. Brilliant. Uh, nice and concise. Um, and we are also joined by Mark Allen, Chief Commercial Officer at Booper. How are you doing today, Mark? Great, thank you. Great to be here. Um, I don't know that Booper needs much introduction, but could you give us your elevator pitch on Booper, please? Uh, I'll give you the high level. Yeah, so uh, Booper, global healthcare company, been around for about 70 years, uh, employs about 83,000 people globally. And in the UK, um, where obviously we're talking about today, we have a number of businesses. Our biggest is the insurance business, but also we have what we call provision businesses, dentists, health clinics and care homes. Brilliant. Uh, well, thank you for that. Um, amazing. Thank you all for joining me. And let's get on with the show. So we're going to start by discussing health insurance as a product. Um, and I think it's probably worth doing a quick overview of the current state of private health insurance in the UK. Um, because like a lot of European countries, it's not necessarily a requirement here. Um, so so how, how common is it? How many people roughly have private health insurance? So, so I can I can kind of kick off. Um, so it's not a great kind of uh, site. So under kind of 10% of the UK population has PMI. And I think according to the ABI, what we've kind of seen is there's actually been a drop over the last four years um, in terms of the number of people covered by PMI. So it's currently around the 4.7 million mark, I believe. I think the, the kind of drop in the last four years um, is 
kind of largely due to the the price point actually um so insurance premium tax coming in that's been doubled since 2015 so that's had a quite a big impact on pmi prices so we've seen about 15% uh, average increase for individual pmi and about an 8% uh, increase for groups so pmi is is a i suppose a relatively kind of more expensive product and actually you know those types of price hikes make it a little bit harder for consumers so that's kind of the the trend that we we've seen so far and what about i mean so so that that's interesting that's not it's not a great percentage of the uk population at all um of that 10% are those people who've bought it directly or are they people who have it through um an employer as a benefit because I, I i use private health insurance through my employer and i know that is a quite a common way of doing it in the uk i don't know if anybody can speak to that maybe i should have asked you to prep some stats before you came in <laughs> i've got i've got a few written down so i so oh, i brilliant <laughs> try and use those but but please um you know mark and matilda please jump in if if you have kind of differing figures but so, so my kind of understanding is that 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 ten percent is actually individual and group. Um, so around kind of twenty five percent, so a quarter are individual PMI policyholders, and the seventy five percent, as you are, are kind of group um, group PMI policies that you you get through your employer. So, yeah, largely kind of on the on the group side, I would say. Yeah, that, that makes sense, particularly if we're talking about price. Um, Matilda, perhaps, is there anything that you can maybe add for, for contrast or some, some a more global perspective? Is there anything off the top of your head that you think, you know, you think the UK is very low or it's very high compared to other places? I know that where you're working, you obviously what, what you're doing is looking at countries where a lot of people have never had insurance before. Um, so I don't, I don't know that may be another fair question, but maybe you have something that you're like, oh, well, instantly I can say this or that, you know, as a comparison point. Uh, yeah, I guess in emerging markets, the insurance penetration in general, so not just health insurance, is 1% to 2% typically. And health insurance or private uh, PMI probably makes up uh, 10% of that. Um, so, and, and in those countries where where even the healthcare systems, the national healthcare systems can't really cope with the, with the demand, you actually, you find that private insurances are really necessary part of the ecosystem to, to allow people to get treatment and, and to see doctors. Um, some, an interesting stat is that in, in the UK, people on average go to see a doctor six or seven times a year, whereas in most emerging markets, um, it can be less than one time per year. Mm -hmm. And what we found is therefore that, you know, things like telemedicine or digital health services can play a huge role in increasing that um, frequency and, and touch points with, with doctors and medical services. I bet that stat's different from men and women. I think men are terrible at this. And I'm sure there's some good stats out there about how useless men are about going to get themselves sorted out or looked at or investigated or whatever you need to go do if there's an issue. Whereas women, I think, are much better from certainly from some, some of the studies and anecdotal evidence I've seen. Yeah, actually, we have some statistics from one of our markets where men uh, claim uh, less frequently, but they claim for longer periods of, of time, like longer stays in hospital, for example. So they wait longer to actually go get treatment, and therefore they're they're worse off and need more care. Whereas Beautiful. women, yeah, yeah. Whereas women and and uh, who are often responsible for their children's health also will much more frequently, but but during much shorter durations, be, be staying in hospital and going to get treatment. Um, Mark, did you have anything you wanted to add? I know Bupa is a global organisation, so maybe you have, have another perspective or, or are you largely focused on the UK? Uh, so my role is focused on the UK, but I, I think we see pretty similar phenomena like, like the one that Matilda's just described there globally. I guess the big difference for us is the different healthcare systems across the world. 
Um, and clearly in the UK, one of the big reasons that so few people have private medical insurance is because the NHS is there as a supposed fr- not free. Obviously, we, we pay tax for it, but at face value, a free alternative and uh, you know, it does a good job. So the market has kind of stalled, I think, a little bit on that basis. And we mentioned insurance premium tax. I know that's something that all of the insurance um, UK insurance CEOs across all the companies have jointly lobbied the government on to try and uh, make the argument that it's kind of counterproductive, really keeping people out of the private sector and, and, and indirectly not helping the um, you know the NHS. Yeah, I mean let's let's um, let's talk a little bit about some of the pros and cons of health insurance. Now we'll bring this back to the UK because, as we say, the pros and cons depending you are where you are in the world are very different. I mean, if you're in America, pro of having private health insurance is that you can have healthcare. Um, a con is that you know <laughs> it's expensive. Um, but let's bring it back to the UK. So those people in the UK, we've established that we do have the NHS is free at point of care. By and large, they will do an excellent job and do the best they absolutely can. So we tend to think of it as like that our first point of call, most of us. So let's start with the cons of private health insurance. Um, so perhaps we talk a lot on this show about how policies can be a little confusing. People think they cover things, they're not. Is that something you've seen? Um, and perhaps, you know, as a way of turning that around, are there ways that your companies you, you guys work with and for are trying to make it easier for people to understand what they're covered for? Yeah, so I think you're kind of onto a point there, Sarah, about the uh, complexity. And I think PMI is an absolutely fantastic product. But I think what it is, is it's, it can be quite confusing. And I think, as you say, in terms of kind of consumers understanding fully what they're covered for and, and the fact that, you know, they're not covered for chronic conditions and things like that. And just making that clear is really important. And I think obviously the price is one piece. And I think, you know, insurers are kind of doing a lot more to make PMI a bit more accessible to the masses. And I think kind of movements towards, you know, some simplified offerings, you know, private diagnostics cover, for example, rather than the fully kind of treatment covered piece um, can really help to bring the, the price down. And it's pretty simple in terms of what it does. So I think that's the kind of shift that I've seen is a shift towards uh, simplified offerings. Cool. So thank you for that, Katie. Um, so Mark, Matilda, is there anything else you'd like to add on, you know, the, the cons of health insurance or perhaps the perceived cons um, and how kind of you've seen companies try and uh, help customers overcome them or, or, or to, to make actually uh, PMI a, a better product for customers? I think the cu- couple of things I'd say is I spent many years in GI and home insurance, motor insurance, and having spent the last three years in health insurance, it's got all the same challenges that you would see around policy wordings and complexity and um, the point that, that Katie's made around people being very clear. And, and we, I think every one of the health insurance companies is on an ongoing journey to try and do everything they can to sell it right and make sure that things are clear. What, what I would say that is a bit different, um, I think, is the general direction of travel of the health insurance market. I think a lot of this is fueled by the point we made earlier about how it's provided, i.e. three quarters of it being given through company funded schemes, because what we see is a lot of demand and innovation coming fueled by the the big corporate clients who want to provide great employee benefits to to retain talent. So if you talk about things like fertility treatment, um, maybe not cover coverage for chronic conditions in a true insurance sense, but certainly support to, to manage chronic conditions we see a lot of demand through the corporate segment, which requires us to respond to that. And then I think over time, you start to see that innovation filter through and find its way into the individually bought policies. And, and we've seen numerous examples of, of that, um, which I think is a force for good for all customers. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're going to offer it as a benefit to your employees, you need to offer them something they actually want as a, as a benefit, as opposed to something they look at and go, that's useless, why would I want that? That doesn't make me want to stay here at this company. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. And I guess those big corporate uh, buyers have a lot of a lot of sway. So if they come to you and say, we've got 2,000 people and they all want uh, chronic care coverage or maybe mental health support, I know that's been something that's historically been lacking, then that gives you um, an incentive to offer it and that helps everybody. Um, Matilda, I'm, I'm going to let you, you finish up here and then we'll we'll move on. Sure. Well, we're sort of fortunate in some ways in our markets to actually be trying to reinvent uh, insurance from the beginning. So th- these people who we speak to, you know, they they ask uh, questions about life insurance, like what happens if I don't die? Do I get my money back? You know, and 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 they, you know, they may seem like uh, you know funny questions to us. You know, what happens if I don't use it? What's the point in me paying out all this money? And I don't see any benefit. And when we continue to take money every single month and they never claim, then they they cancel the policy because they don't feel like it's been a value to their life. And we have to explain that it's like wearing a helmet or paying a security guard, right? And and it's therefore going to add value at some point in case something happens. But I would say there's, you know, what we found as barriers, I think actually... Uh, you can see very many similarities to the UK. So price is absolutely one. Um, and the other one is complexity and exclusions and therefore a lack of trust in whether what you're actually trying to get covered is actually going to be covered. And therefore, is it worthwhile for me to pay this? Um, and then uh, thirdly, the ease of claims. So you might have been put off by an experience of trying to make a claim where something either wasn't covered or it was so much work that it wasn't worthwhile. Um and then there's for us the the question of what if I what if I don't use it what do I get out of it um, and I know that that may not be a question that that some people ask in the UK but if you think about millennials and you think about people starting to approach this for the first time they may wonder what do I get for it especially when you have something like the NHS where you know maybe ninety percent of your healthcare can be really well covered by something that's given for free um, so I mean we, we've tried to reinvent that through price points that are extremely low I mean starting as little as like two cents a day but then we can only cover certain types of risks. So for example, a life insurance or personal accident or for health right now, we just cover hospital cashback, which is probably the most basic uh, of of all of the, the sort of PMI types of cover. But it's one way to sort of make it very simple. This is the one moment in which you can claim. And we even have started processes where we do auto claims. Um, If somebody's been a loyal customer, we actually pay them out without getting any documentation based on how many nights stay they've had in hospital. So there's ways of getting around it. But I think we have the benefit of being able to kind of invent this as we're starting kind of in a greenfield space. It's interesting that, Matilda, the questions that you people are asking in different countries, I mean, I think it's fair to say we ask the same questions here, right? So no, no matter what, whether it's a health policy or a, a motor policy, people of all ages ask, what's the benefit in buying this thing if I'm never actually going to use it? So I think the communications around insurance generally is is really hard and not getting any easier, especially if you look at things like disposable income and where we're spending money and what's not. I guess it's a good segue into um, COVID as well. So Mark, probably one for you, given, you know, hospitals and and, and big healthcare and whatever else right now. But, you know, COVID hit early March. What on earth happened to health insurance? If you you look at all the news stories, we've got a whole host of things going from uh, longer delays or whatever. Where do you even start with all this? What's your take? Uh, We started by working some long hours um, and some long weeks um, through March and April, uh, I think. I mean, we could be here all day talking about the number of things we had to think about, stuff 
that any business had to think about, about how do you answer the phones when you can't use your own offices and so on, and, and all those kind of mobilizing people to, as a home working force. For, for, for our customers, I think there was probably a, a hierarchy of things from things that were very urgent to things that it, um, evolved as, as we've gone through the crisis. So if you start right at the basics of many of our policies had a pandemic exclusion, that, that is a, obviously a familiar term to the insurance market and we made a decision that went to our board very early on to remove that exclusion we don't offer uh, uh, much we don't cover covid but we do cover hospital expenses in the event someone needs to be into an nhs hospital so we waived that exclusion um, we upped the ante on our communication dramatically i think from the way we communicated to intermediaries to clients also moved to a rhythm of weekly comms out to customers and that's not easy when you don't have that many email addresses you don't have permissions on those email addresses so you're resorting to old-fashioned methods and it's quite expensive to to do obviously lots of letters going out every friday reminding people that of what's going on um but we saw ourselves particularly as booper um given the the prominence of the brand we, we felt throughout we had a role to try and educate people and 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 communicate what was going on so more than anything i think the thing we've tried through the whole crisis is to help people understand the state of provision that you know the the capacity in the hospitals um, help people to understand and maybe overcome their fear that when capacity started to return it was safe to go back in and so on and clearly as a business um, that has provision so we do own one hospital the Cromwell in in London that was part of the independent hospital deal and, and we handed that capacity over to the NHS so yeah a big complex communication exercise um, that's not straightforward. So I guess on practical terms, that that I mean, I know that we get onto a little bit about the the deal where um, which was done between the NHS and, and private health organisations in the UK. But would that mean that if I was um, a, a private health customer and I was receiving ongoing treatment for something either within um, a Bupa hospital or, or you know within an NHS hospital, would that have been paused or cancelled based on the? The, the conversations because obviously this is a little bit blurred lines I imagine because like the NH- when the NHS closed on everything except for COVID and emergencies then obviously the answer is yes but what I'm trying to get at is I wonder if um, I wonder how many angry customers you had who were like I'm paying for healthcare and I can't access it because um, and obviously that's part of the communication challenge. Yeah I mean we, we obviously track complaints we haven't seen a spike in complaints but I know for a fact if you talk to our frontline people one of the biggest challenges whether someone was having treatment or not having treatment was, hang on a minute, I'm paying a premium every month and I can't use my policy. Um, we were quick to publicly say that we would refund any exceptional financial benefit we made. And that is a that was a big, big commitment. We've published some more detail on that. But as you can imagine, that's making our actuaries really scratch their heads at the moment because it's not only a shortfall now, but then there's the potential for it to all catch up and there'll be a kind of peak in demand later. Um, if you said, is it true that somebody who was in the mid-treatment could have had it delayed? Yeah, of course, of course, that's true. Um, you know, the independent hospital deal um, meant that private capacity was handed over to the NHS as a priority, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody, everything went on hold for three months. It, it would very much depend on the individual circumstances. But I think as a, as a sector, and certainly as Bupa, We've tried to do our best to to be seen to be standing shoulder to shoulder with the NHS and 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 not um, maybe fueling the the sort of perception of private healthcare being different. 
And is that a, uh, just out of interest, on the hospital deal, I saw the same in Ireland where 16 private healthcare hospitals were handed to the government. Is that kind of a part of the SAGE group or whatever the emergency response is for the country in terms of pandemic? Is that a default plan in place already or is that done on spur of the moment as required? Uh, I, I don't know, I mean, how much pre-planning was done, but certainly we, we, we're connected through the, um, I think it's the Federation of Independent Hospitals. Uh, it moved incredibly quickly and they freed up something like 20,000 20, staff, 8,000 beds, you know, in the space of a couple of weeks. So um, it's good. It's it it great, great to see. And, you know, the Cromwell Hospital itself, we've done something like 700 surgeries of, of crit- not COVID, but crit- critical care that should have been being done in the NHS has moved to private provision to make way and space for COVID to be treated in, in for example, Royal Marsden. So, you know, there's no doubt that worked um, in general because the NHS wasn't over overwhelmed and, and um, you know, I think there was capacity and we certainly didn't see claims dry up to zero. You know, no, no way. There's still claims have been coming through. People have still been getting treatment. Mark, that's super interesting. And I, what, what I love from it is that generally the whole country rushed forward to help out and you guys were obviously right on the front line. So it's 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 really brilliant to see. Matilda, what have you seen from around the world? Have you seen similar situations in different countries where it's kind of, all, you know, all troops to the front line to go solve what we can do? Yeah, we have. And in particular in telemedicine, I would say. Um, <clears throat> so, for example, we are working with the Pakistani government and the Indonesian government to try and offload a, a, a bit of what is the equivalent of NHS 111, uh, where people are calling in trying to get uh, an- get questions answered or to speak to doctors. Um, and so we have uh, deals where we offload that either through calls or, or through chat, doctor's chat functionality. So there definitely was an outpouring from from governments for support from digital health providers. I would say we also felt very much a responsibility on not spreading fear and misinformation because we speak to about 5 million customers every month uh, across all of our nine markets uh, through either sales agents or through inbound um, agents. And if our agents would lead with, you know, it's easier to sell a health or insurance or a telemedicine product during COVID because you can lead with a very scary story around, look, COVID is 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 going to do bad things. And so you really need this product. And we made a very conscious effort and a retraining exercise of all of our staff to make sure they did not ever lead with, with COVID uh, as a, a sort of sales pitch. Um, and equally, I think, like Mark said, we we played a role in trying to educate the public through social media, through SMSs and that sort of thing. I mean, telemedicine is really interesting in general. I mean, I have a, a follow-up question on telemedicine in the markets that you operate in. So is that equally accessible from uh, people's cell phones in, in, in the markets that you're operating now or how did that work? Is everyone on smartphone today? No, it's accessible just through a phone number. So you don't need to have a, an app or a video call or anything digitally enabled. You just you just call the, the doctor through a phone number, if that's what your, your question was. Uh, yeah, it, it's exactly that. I, I see telemedicine as more of a, a video chat. I know, Mark, you've rolled out Babylon. Katie, I know your background from previous other health insurers as well. Well, they've got some really cool technology in play. But equally, to do that, you've got to have the infrastructure to make, make that work as well, right? 
Yeah, you don't have to make it digital to to make it actually a valuable service, right? So so our our customers can speak to a doctor over the phone and they can do a lot of very good diagnostics uh, on the phone and if not then they do have to direct them to uh, to a clinic or a hospital, but we also try to digitize the journey about prescriptions can be done over SMSs, um lab results and things like that can all be done digitally um, as well. No, fantastic. I mean, Katie, have you, have you got a perspective on things like the telemedicine? And, and all we ever see right now is the, a, a huge launch and drive into people using this more and more. And I think pre-COVID, you know, people were were fearful of it. And post-COVID or during COVID, they're like, the last place I want to go to is the hospital or a GP surgery or anywhere else. So it seems like a rush to a service that were, and I actually heard Ali Passer, the CEO of Vander Babylon, talk about the same thing. So have you seen the same sort of thing in the markets you're serving? Yeah, definitely. I think um, I think telemedicine's fantastic. I think virtual GPs, video consultations, phone calls, as, as you kind of said, Matilda. I think there's been this um, you know surge t- towards that technology because it's just so much more convenient, isn't it, than than actually having to book a GP appointment, go there. You might have to take half a day off work to do that, whereas actually you can just take a phone call. So I, I think that they're a fantastic solution and as you said Nigel you know COVID has kind of made them even more important you know people don't want to go to the doctors anymore and so just being able to have a quick phone call or a video consultation is just super important really really helpful at the moment so I and I think actually it's shown that it can be done and it is possible and actually it helps everybody to work more efficiently so even beyond COVID whenever that happens to be I imagine that this kind of level of activity on the the kind of telemedicine side will will stay actually unless you know I suppose the flip side might be we've been in lockdown for so long people might actually want the human interaction of uh, seeing a doctor but uh... <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't disagree with you there one bit and actually from the show last week where we interviewed Guy Farley we talked about um, telemedicine for pets and 24 by 7 video calls so a whole different story let's take a quick break but we'll be back very very soon do you follow 11fs on linkedin if you don't you should we make content over there that you don't want to miss out on and we're starting not one but two new live shows on tuesdays we're going to dive into the biggest industry news stories and on thursday we'll be grilling some of the most well-known experts in financial services on what they do for a living uh, you'll have the chance to ask your questions and get them answered live on the show by some of the best minds in the industry so find out more by heading over to our 11fs linkedin page now on with the show Okay, so um, we've covered kind of like how, uh, you know, in private health insurers reacted um, to COVID um, and touched a little bit on kind of what's covered and what's not been covered. I know, Mark, that you said that Boop had talked about deferring payments or refunding payments where coverage wasn't used. Does anybody else have any other examples of, of kind of how the health insurance industry has handled this? Because obviously, you know, as you said, the UK is not the only country that's been affected by it. Um, you know, Katie, Matilda, do you have any examples of your own of where you've seen private health insurance react um, in the same way that we've covered on this show previously, you know, the auto um, insurance industry has, uh, I think the Americans kicked it off by offering rebates and then everybody else went, oh God, we better do it as well then. Um, and everybody else seemed to sort of follow, you know, like dominoes. Um, do you, have you got any other examples, um, perhaps outside of Booper, where you've seen companies do similar things or, or diff, you know, offer alternatives Some people offering credit or vouchers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Katie, you're nodding there. I suspect you've got a couple. Yeah, I've got a couple of examples. So, I mean, as as kind of Mark said, I think a few health insurers have, have stepped forward and, and offered kind of the, the premium refunds or sharing the surplus for many reduced claims and things, which I think is fantastic. It kind of helps to 
build, I suppose, that, that trust with the consumer, which is always a challenge with insurers um, and insurance. I think um, other kind of things that I've seen PMI providers doing are kind of introducing just more more services. So obviously the, the kind of COVID testing is one piece and the antibody testing has been introduced by a few of them. And, you know, mental health support has, has been expanded by a couple of providers, you know, counselling and CBT. And, and, and another kind of service that I saw as well was was kind of this um like clinical digital clinical support so for people who have non-urgent uh conditions uh, who are waiting treatment actually some some pmi providers are kind of offering support on how they can manage their symptoms ahead of having the surgery so i think that's that's a really nice kind of added value feature there as well yeah and we've we actually uh we we have a product that uh we call medication support and it's sort of our hybrid between our telemedicine and our insurance products where if a doctor prescribes a medicine even if it's an ibuprofen or paracetamol um the customer has essentially put aside a part of their premium that goes to towards paying for any medications and we're not uh, associated with any type of, of uh, of drugs or pharmaceutical companies so it's it's not tied at all but what we did there was essentially say you can now also spend that money on masks and and hand sanitizers and we also offered uh, sort of our teledoctor services for free to anyone who wanted to sign up for for a period of time yeah i mean that, that's brilliant to see that kind of agility in the industry and to see to see the reaction of, of insurers to uh, situations around them and um, with that in mind have, has anybody got any examples of um, what private health insurers have done where people have coverage through their employer but due to current circumstances they have lost their job um i actually don't know how it works i probably should know this maybe you can give me some personal information here but i assume that if people lose their job or leave their job then they have the option historically to continue with the private medical cover but they have to pay for it out of their own pocket um a is that true and b have you seen any private health insurers offer kind of okay a period of extension coverage for like i don't know for example just as an example three months because you've lost your job and whilst you're trying to find your feet we'll continue that coverage um i, I guess that could be down to private health insurers or it could be down to employers um, mark you're nodding there Rob. yeah so uh, i mean that that pe- people who come off a what we would call a group scheme because they leave the employer for whatever reason. That's a, a fairly big chunk of the of the market where people have had access to this benefit and they don't want to lose it. And then insurers would probably do some kind of introductory discount to, to try and catch the, 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 the customer and keep that keep them as a as a customer. In terms of the current situation, which I guess is only just starting to play out, I think we certainly haven't given that a great deal of thought at the moment, but I think we would expect that really to come from the employer and is particularly sensitive if someone's mid-treatment and and this is going to be one of the dilemmas I think for employers about you know you lose some people but you've got private medical insurance and people are having something maybe serious um, then I suspect we're going to want to talk to the insurance company about how how they can be seen to to handle things sensitively if they can afford it and and maybe there's another another kind of wave of support being saved up (laughs) for us all to face into at some point in the future. I think, as you say, it's almost the mid-treatment piece you have to worry about. If, you know, if you're mid-treatment on oncology or whatever else it might be, it's uh, it's one you wouldn't want to lose. And then equally, I know the government scheme, at least in the UK on furlough, if you've been let go, you could also go back to the previous employer, provided it hits a certain date, and then go back and be re-employed to qualify correctly for the for the furlough scheme and any said benefits that go with that. So 
it generally feels like a solid response all around and everyone's everyone's rushed to do the right thing where they possibly could. One of the things that I think maybe helped the whole UK and I, and I guess the world very early on was the number of brands that got it wrong in terms of things they did, things they said, which I think kind of encouraged every brand to realise that there's consequences for your, for your actions and hopefully that, you know, even though things have maybe quietened down a little bit, Hopefully that's front of mind for people as they as they manage through whatever's left of the crisis. I, I mean, you, you you hit on another point there about Boopa specifically that I've always enjoyed, which is you're not shareholder driven in that way. You have a very different, um, I don't want to say moral compass, but you're not driven in a typical monetary perspective in that way, are you? Uh, no, we have a purpose, helping people live longer, healthier, happier lives. And I remember when I joined Boopa, that was one of the questions about whether that was kind of what you read in the company brochure or whether it was it was real. Um, and I asked that question through my own interview process. And, um, you know, I'm glad to say that three years on, it's, it's very much alive. So it's, it's helpful. But I don't, I don't think it's perhaps not critical because other people will be bothered about the, the bad press anyway, if they're listed or, or whatever. I, I suppose it just adds a, it's a, it's a, it's a helpful step in the right direction. It's a, it's a good segue into how hard the industry has been hit in general. And I mean, for us in insurance, Sarah and I have been discuss- discussing for weeks and weeks and weeks the BI case, the, the business interruption case that's been going on through the test case in the courts for small businesses. How has the overall health industry and the PMI industry been affected by this? Has there been a big impact? Have people stopped buying? Have they, you know, is there a negative reaction back to the point about claims not being able to do certain, certain things before? What, what's your take on this? So no, I can I can give very very high level, but obviously I don't work for an insurer, so I don't know the exact claim stats. But um, kind of speaking very very high level, I think what we have seen on the on the life insurance side, actually, particularly for critical illness, there have been fewer claims because people aren't going to the doctor as much. And you know there was an article in in the BBC today that said that you know one million women have missed their breast cancer screenings um, because of COVID, and that's that's a you know, that's a poor, a poor outcome. And so, you know, I don't know the exact figures on, on PMI claims. I imagine there may be a bit of a reduction. And, and I think, you know, that's coming through in the fact that, you know, some insurers are offering a, a refund of, of any surplus they have and they do see from, from reduced claims. But yeah, I think that that's kind of very high level, but I'm sure Matilda and Mark can provide a bit of a uh, bit more detail around that. Yeah, I guess when the crisis hit for us, we we sort of had a mantra that plan for the worst and hope for the best. And so we expected um, at some point during the pandemic, and we still may hit that, that that claims would uh, sharply increase at some stage. Now, what we saw is exactly what Katie said, that during is in particular the periods of lockdown, but even, you know, some weeks after lockdown and all but two of our markets went into lockdown as well, um, that, that claims did decrease. And as you say, because people were avoiding hospitals or indeed hospitals were actually closed to the general public unless you had COVID symptoms. And in some markets, even there was a stigma attached to, to having COVID or even that you would be assigned to go to a, you know, a, an army barracks to do a quarantine while while you recover from uh, symptoms. <clears throat> so people actively avoided um, avoided going to to hospitals and things. But you know what we saw, I guess, in in uh, you know return or the reciprocal side of that is that our demand for our telemedicine services doubled. Um, but what was interesting was only a very small portion of people calling in were actually symptomatic. With with, with COVID symptoms. Um, and the large part of the increase actually came from people who wanted to get advice about other things that they, they therefore weren't 
uh, talking to their doctors about. Really interesting. I'm now curious, which two markets didn't go into lockdown? Tanzania and Cambodia. Uh, Tanzania um, effectively ruled out COVID um, very, very early on. Um, so yeah, it was, it, it was a particularly kind of worrying situation, I think, for all of our markets, because as you can imagine, lockdown in, I think Imran Khan said it in Pakistan, that the prime minister of, of Pakistan, he said that, you know, lockdown may actually hit us harder than than actual COVID would, because we may have more deaths from people dying of poverty and, and starvation um, if we lock down. Uh, and yet, I think the, the general consensus in the country was they needed to do something. And equally, the same with, with Ghana and, and all of our other markets. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was often very short-lived lockdown, so a couple of weeks, and then very quickly lifting out of lockdown in many markets. Um, I think places like the Philippines have only very recently, I think in the last few weeks, come out of a, a very strict uh, lockdown situation. So I guess each market is hitting second waves and reacting to, to things very differently. It, it, it's generally fascinating. Even Mark, one for you. I mean, you talked about the pandemic clause earlier being removed as a as a board decision, going forward, and we all hope this thing was going to be over in three months, here we are heading into the next six months of it. Do we see things like pandemics being covered more widely now or less widely? Will, will that clause ever come back into play? And I'm not going to commit you to any answer here, obviously, but it's just, get, get, it's be good to get a view as to whether we can now ever, ever put something that, like that back in again. Yeah. I, um, I mean, we were, we were very clear when we waived the pandemic exclusion um, that we waived it for the period of the current crisis because it was an exclusion that has been in there for a, a long period of time and we felt it was the sort of thing you would need to do quite a lot of work on to decide if you were going to waive it for, forever but it felt like the right thing to do and we wanted to make that decision um, quickly. I think just, just coming back on the treatment um, point, one, one of the things that maybe we haven't um, touched on, although I, I guess um, Matilda hinted at it a bit there, is we all think claims volumes have gone down and they have in general, but there are certain conditions that have gone up beyond what we would normally have expected. For example, mental health. So we're seeing mental health claims at about 140% of what we saw this time last year. So you, you can see that um, it isn't just as simple as thinking the hospitals are shut, so that, that there must be less less claims. I think what, what will shape um, what what insurers choose to do in the future around innovation and what they should do and what they should and shouldn't cover will probably be how the demand plays out. So if, if we look in the future at the moment and what we're seeing um, in the individually paid market, we're seeing demands high um, because I think people are seeing some of the data around potential waiting lists in the NHS and thinking, and maybe if they were wavering before, they're thinking now might be a good time to buy it because they're looking for that peace of mind. In the small to medium business side, um, affordability becomes a really big issue because it's clearly a segment of the economy that's strained. So um, I think we're expecting that to be quite a tough market, but might require us to think very carefully about lower value entry point products or subscription products. And then in the bigger corporate market, those companies that are still in, in good health and will continue to be in good health, I think they've had probably a wake up call which is that this is an incredibly important employee benefit and how do we offer it to more people? Um, so it's a very unusual kind of market with ups and downs depending on which segment. And, and I think that will guide insurers about what's the smartest thing to do then and where do you invest your kind of finite innovation funds and your, your technology funds 
um, because obviously something like just a pandemic exclusion change in your contract has probably got a big price tag in terms of all the systems you'd need to change. So um, I, I suspect we'll just see more whole of workforce, cheaper subscription products um, and you know, gluing together of, of, of telemedicine type benefits without necessarily heavy um, insurance benefits. So that's a really good point as we're as we're close to wrapping up. Mark has already answered my final question of every podcast, which is what's next for health insurance? So you've done your bit, Mark, very eloquently. Ladies, I hope um, he hasn't covered uh, all your points. I think, Matilda, you were you were raring to go there. So I'll let um, I'll let that uh, Matilda and Katie give their, their perspectives on the future of health insurance as well. Yeah. Uh, now I've kind of forgotten what I was going to say, but um, but one of them was for us that we do cover pandemics and we did already before epidemics and pandemics. We already covered those before the the, the crisis um, sort of ensued. And that's because many of our markets may be much more prone to that. And we felt an obligation to make sure we covered it. And um, what we found now uh, is that many insurers are much more worried about it um, because they may not have perceived it as something that that may ever happen when they first reviewed our contracts. And and now they're very much more aware and, and are trying to sort of insert various exclusions that we very much vehemently are opposing to, to include still and exclude in our contracts. And I know just to, um, to to give you a bit of a, uh, I don't know, a chance to advertise if you like, but I know that you recently had um, a significant investment round. So is there anything that you've got planned to, to spend that that money on? Um, that's that any Anything exciting you can tell us that might be coming soon? Yeah, I guess we, we still have a long way to go to cover um, a, a significant portion of the population. So more and more people who need insurance and who need uh, telemedicine that we have to cover. But also we're expanding out how that link between telemedicine and insurance and the digital nature of those products and the linkages between them uh, really works for, for one of our customers. Because we don't really see the distinct lines uh, between insurance and health industries like we see them here in, in markets where they've been very developed for very many years because a customer of ours may ask us a question uh, like, can I get my blood pressure checked when we're offering them a health insurance policy? And so what we realize is they perceive this as a general risk and they need it covered financially and they need it covered through uh, providing the services, um, the, the health uh, care services as well. Um, so we've kind of built a journey where a customer can can get health programs for preventative care, um, they then can speak to a doctor. A doctor can then recommend them to go sort of online to offline services, so to clinics or labs or pharmacies. They then get discounts or special a special treatment. Um, and then we can link it to an insurance product like a medication support. And ultimately, it all kind of comes back around. So there's a lot of work to do to reinvent this whole space and to try and cover as many people as possible. Well, we look forward to seeing what you do next. Um, and Katie, would you like the final word on the future of health insurance? Sure, um, I'll be honoured. So, so I think um, in the kind of in in the shorter term, I think it'll be interesting to see how demand for PMI changes if it does. I mean, I saw some research recently that kind of said that demand or interest in private treatment had doubled since the onset of the pandemic, and I, I think that makes sense. You know, I think we, we all know the NHS is under a lot of pressure, but I think the pandemic has really brought to light just how much pressure can there is and, and how how kind of stretched the NHS can be so I think it'd be interesting to see how sales and, and demand for private provision kind of changes over time and I think in the longer term it's something I, I mentioned kind of earlier but I, I do think we'll see this shift towards simpler propositions and it's something that Mark touched on about 
you know, more affordable options um, with the kind of tele- um, telemedicine with, you know, some diagnostics cover, but kind of very simple, very transparent cover that's that's more affordable and accessible to all, I think is what we'll see. Brilliant. Well, that sounds like a fantastic future. So um, let's help we get there relatively quickly. Um, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much to my guests and, of course, to Nigel. Uh, where can listeners find out more about you? Matilda, do you have a website or a Twitter handle or a LinkedIn you'd like to share? Yep. So it's uh, com, And I think Bima Mobile is also the place you can find us on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Perfect. Katie, how about you? Yep, so you can go to uh, tobay.uk. Um, I'm just currently checking my Twitter handle, <laughs> Katie, uh, Katie, <laughs> at Katie Tobay, uh, and LinkedIn, of course, as well. Perfect. Um, Mark, how about you? Uh, so, boopa.co.uk if you want to know more about Boopa, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And Nigel. Being super healthy as always in boot camps, trying to stay fit on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Intertech Insiders or our 11FS LinkedIn page. That is 11 colon FS. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, which you can find on Spotify and your other podcast providers. In Tech Insider, we'll be back very soon. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.